Well, the thing, the other, uh, another person I want to ask about at OWI, who, and I don't know if he was at OWI, but I, he was certainly at F, in, involved with the FSA, is Ed Roskam. Roskam. Yeah. Was he around when you were yeah. there? He was, what, writing things? Writing and uh, concerned with publication. He and his, I, he had a wife, rather Louise. Heavy Louise, yeah. I think Red here, I may be all wrong, but nice person. And I was friendly with Ed, and uh, he mainly had to do with publication ideas and that kind of thing. So you wouldn't have dealt directly with him especially? Oh, uh, no. No, my contacts mainly, as far as work was concerned, were, were just primarily with Stryker. There were some other marvelous people like, uh, I think John Vashon was there and already beginning to drink. And uh, there was Jack Delaney, who was a very sharp guy, who later on, I believe, went to Puerto Rico and set up the audio-visual thing. And I think Ed Ruskin went with him mm -hmm. at first. They made films in Puerto Rico for yeah. a while. And Delano's still down there. Is he? Yeah. And, but at Roskam, you see, then at one point did a book called Towboat River, where he and his wife went down and did a book on the Mississippi towboat traffic. Mm -hmm. the, um, there was a period of time, apparently, that isn't written about much, between the official end of the FSA and the official beginning of that photo unit in OWI. Apparently there was about nine months where the photo unit was kept together by Stryker, more or less by their wits, and they were officially non-existent, um, where they actually went out and did commercial jobs and so on. And the, you know, the way the government uh, can be manipulated is so large um, until the OWI deal could be completely set up. You know well, I was that well I, I was in the middle of it, you see. That's why the confusion about me, um, even in my, you know, I thought I was the last photographer hired by OWI. By FSA. I mean FSA, sorry. And the first photographer really hired by OWI. Uh, and there was this interim period, you see, Stryker was scurrying around trying to keep some kind of photographic unit together. And you always remember, there were periods too, I think, when people were not paid. See, the money had not been appropriated. And there, were, there was a, his assistant, a political assistant, Ed somebody, big tall guy, very heavy set. I want to say Hanley, but that's not right. I don't know where I can Well, I can't remember, but in any case, his function was going around a congressman and you know, different departments trying to always scrounge money or, you know, get jobs. Uh, Vanderbilt refers to some guy who he could not remember specifically who was a uh, one of these government people who knows how to fill out the forms in triplicate and make it look right, even though what you're really doing is you're practically uh, stealing somebody's supplies. No, it's typical. Paper. It's first sergeant in yeah. the Army. Quartermaster General, or... If you know yeah. the rules, you can do whatever you want. And captains are... You know, uh, officers in the in the uh, military are at loss without their some equivalent to the first sergeant. Somebody's been there twenty years, knows every rule, and can do anything you want legally. A fixer. No matter how dastardly it is, he knows how to do it. Whether it's supplies or moving personnel or you know giving a party or running a crap game legally or. Do you remember the name of this guy who worked for Strike? Was this this guy Ed, Ed or is this somebody else? Ed, no, Ed something. Because he's the unsung hero of some, a lot of this, it seems. Well, I think maybe the guy that might know that. Well, I don't know. Russell Lee would certainly know. Gene would know it. Hmm. I mean, because Gene stayed in the office there. You know, she worked there. So did you actually start working during this period when it was a kind of cash and carry and slightly unofficial transition period there? Yeah, it was a little mixed up to me. There was a great deal of talk about, you know, money and... Because uh, I understand that they did jobs like for the British Admiralty 
and all kinds, of, and they were strictly, uh, you know, cash and anybody in town almost, you know, they weren't just government jobs by any means during the, that transition, but just to keep money coming in so they could keep the unit together. Did you do any jobs like that? I don't remember. You see, some of those jobs that I did for the State Department might have been billed to the State Department. I remember there was something like that, trying to bill other departments for, of doing jobs for other departments. There was also competition, you see, with other photo units. There were a lot of other photo units in the government, all terrible. Every big branch had a... Well, yeah, the Department of Agriculture had all kinds of photographers, terrible ones, in the main. They certainly weren't doing the kind of job that uh, OWI people were doing. Uh, they were, but they were, you know, bureaucratic, civil service jobs. I just happen to think my designation, that slipped me, GAF 11 or 14, I can't remember. GS 11? GAF. General Administrative Financial or something. That was my civil service rating. It was, it was the highest rating any photographer had. It was Ross, I'm sure it was Ross and myself. And called arti artistic photographer. Photographer artist, probably. It was some number like 11 or 14? Yeah. Hmm. I'm sure there's government records on the whole thing somewhere. Oh, I'm sure of it, and probably the dates. And I know that it was exactly in the transition from farm security and OWI. <clears throat> now, Ben Chan was making posters all the time, staying there, and uh, if he photographed, I didn't know about it. I don't think he did at that point. He was, you know, drawing and well-known poster maker. Um, Roscombe was making, if I recall, pamphlets. See, there were a lot of distribution of all kinds of different pamphlets. And, uh, and you were there one year about, all, till, yeah. till the next June, basically? Yeah, I think so. And that was the next June you were in Cincinnati and got your notice? Right. And then got out. Did you work primarily in the Midwestern part of the country that you were familiar with? Is that the idea? No, I did work in the Midwest, but I, you know, the, the, the major, I did work in Washington, a lot of it, right around. That sort of got acclimated to the job, in fact, in Washington. But then the biggest job that I did was this Bethlehem Fairfield shipyard thing, the Building Liberty Ships. No, wait, was of that? which there's a double page reproduction U.S. camera of 42 or 43. I thought you said that was done freelance for FSA. Oh, no. That was no. done on staff. Yeah. Um, no, I went there and spent, I don't know, six, six weeks or something like that photographing every inch of those. So that would have counted for a major piece of your time right there. Oh, absolutely. I went and covered every ship launching for, you know, and drank champagne every other day. <laughs> went to all the, you know, ship launchings. <clears throat> but then photographed the Jacob's Ladders and the sub-assemblies and uh, just everything. And that was very exciting to me. Shall we, um, shall we stop at the OWI? You want to go and talk about where you were in when you got into the service a bit now, or uh, yeah, let's keep on. Let me let me make a phone call. Actually, pretty easily. Uh, okay. Um, this is a dumb question, but why did you leave the OWI? I mean, why didn't you just stay? I felt totally guilty about everybody being in uniform and me not, particularly my brother. That was really the personal uh, oh, yeah. thing I mean. Everybody, there was anybody, everybody excepting those were were defective in some way or something. Or Mennonites. <laughs> yeah, or Mennonites. Or, it was interesting who went in. Uh, Todd Webb enrolled in the Seabees, you see, very early. Todd had been, you know, a broker and then he worked for Chrysler Export and he went in very early. And that, that was a tough outfit. They were building bases, you know, in the uh, Pacific. Um, 
his friend, our friend, Harry Callahan, theoretically had an ulcer. There's never been any signs of it since. So he worked and made a lot of money during the war working in General Motors lab printing and doing his own work. He just stayed on at General Motors? Yeah. Well, I don't know if he stayed on. I think he got a job there. I can't remember exactly. I know he worked there. Um, Russell Lee volunteered, you know, was made an officer. There, I tried to get into the Navy at one point, but was turned down. Why were you turned down? I, mean, just <laughs> I guess I wasn't a gentleman. Uh, I, as an officer, I would try to get uh, a commission, direct commission. At that point, if you had a lot of political clout, you could get a direct commission. Well, you just went right in as an officer. Yeah, right. So, uh, Oh, all my friends were in the in the military. It was very different from the Korean War. Everybody knew what the war was about. They're perfectly clear. There was a shortage of men. Everybody, you know, that wasn't in was in the war effort. Effort. Women were working on men's jobs. Uh, earlier, I had done a lot of jobs. I don't think I've mentioned like photographing the uh, building the B twenty four you know, beginning to Willow Run, photographing the... Before OWI? I think that was. Like for life Close or something on. like that? No, no, for OWI. Oh, but as a freelance? Yeah, it was either freelance or for OWI, I can't remember. I made four or five color things in the air. Hmm. Color was pretty tricky then. I was already not bad at it. Um, now, when you would shoot color then, were you... Did you have to do all the processing yourself, or no. or was it impossible to do it yourself? I wouldn't think of it. It was complicated, and that wasn't my job. Uh, no, that was tricky stuff. That was a whole other way of another kind of technology. Um, so you're saying anyway, I did somewhere along the line for OWI or even farm security, the building of the B-24 at the Willow Run and photographing the building that was unfinished and flying around in B-24s and flying around Piper Cubs photographing... B-24s? No, photographing... Oh, the uh, looking are... down, you know. Mm -hmm. Lovely airplane, Piper Cub. Well, it was like a flying tripod, practically. That could glide, you see, that was still in the area, so, you know, we would, could fly very low, and if it stalled, you just got no sweat. Um, well, anyway, so uh, I got out, and I wanted to, and uh, I'm not even sure now that I was deferred, or it could have been deferred, or what the hell. Uh, all I know is that there were arrangements made for me to go into the Sigma Corps as, you know, officer's training, and uh, I came back, went, settled up some of my affairs, and uh, threw out a lot of stuff or put it aside and was then thrown out, uh, and went into, was tested at the induction center, and I think in, it was... In Battle Creek. In Battle Creek, yeah, and then... I uh, can't remember exactly where it happened, but I think it was at Battle Creek, I'm sure it was. Uh, they looked over my record and said, you have you know, college teaching experience and a high mechanical aptitude. I mean, the test showed that. And they said the Air Corps needed link trainer instructors and mechanics, which is a very skilled kind of a thing. And it was very confusing going into these inductions. There were thousands of guys moving every day and washing dishes and, you know, pans and, you know, it was very confusing. Get it fitted with uh, uniforms and everything. Hundred guys standing around their underwear at any given Yeah. So, uh, 
I said, okay, I'll go to the Air Corps. Which was a branch of the Army at that point, administratively more. Uh, it was called the Army Air Corps. <laughs> United States Army Air Corps. So I got sent to uh, Miami Beach, Florida, where they had uh, acquired a great number of the hotels there to station the men, and there was a training, a basic training center, one of the large ones, for the Air Corps. There was also an officer's training school for the Air Corps there. And uh, I had to go through, theoretically, I think it was three months basic training, and we went upstairs and downstairs from the eighth floor or something, and I got up at, I don't know, I guess five o'clock or something, you know, you made your bed and had your breakfast by, I don't know, six or six-thirty, and then by seven o'clock or eight o'clock you were out there drilling. Well, I wasn't in bad shape when I went in, but because I was in this program, I had to wait until it opened up. It was the only place was the Chinook Field. You know, where was that located? That's named after the... That's located down near, uh, it's Rantoul, Illinois. It's about uh, 10 miles north of Urbana. So I was in basic training for nine months. I was so healthy. I mean, <laughs> I could run you know, 20 miles, sleep in a swamp. <laughs> And but I was there so long, I met, you know, girls that lived in the community, and uh, uh, I was in such fine condition that when, you know, five o'clock came, or, you know, we either had our dinner or something, I, I and a, another friend would take off and we'd go to Miami and we'd have a decent dinner or, you know, go out with some girls or go see a movie or something. Uh, so you just to part of that was I missed one time when it did open. I think after about six months, uh, something happened that I was ill or something, not immediately available for that batch, or something happened. So I had to wait again. Well, then I I had been asked then to go to officers' training in the Air Corps. In the Air Corps, but having watched these guys and saw how the Air Corps operated. To me, I decided, no, I'd rather go to Chinook Field, which I did. Now, you were there about nine months. You, you went in around June or probably July of 42? Yeah. So you Three. Were, right, 43. Yeah. So you were there until sometime 44, practically, well, before you get to Chinook yeah. Field. And I did a wonderful picture story there on my barracks. Now, here was just my next question was, when you went in, what did, you, what did you take with you in the way of camera stuff? I mean, because you, you kept working. A Rolleiflex. Was all As you I had. recall, yeah, that's all. But then I made a whole bunch, uh, and I had a flash uh, attachment of some kind. I used number five volts. I did a whole series, a whole book, which I actually mounted in the form of a book, and that was published, some of it was published, a couple pages, in, I think it was U.S. Camera Magazine. In 40, uh, I don't know, or somewhere sometime. around there, yeah. Somebody asked me for that about two years ago. Some woman picture agency person who had seen it. Hmm. There, somebody was doing something on that period and she collected that. It's probably up there somewhere. It's probably up there someplace. They were neat pictures. The fellows in the barracks loved them. I mean, they bought some pictures, or I gave them pictures, I can't remember. Mm -hmm. I can't remember how I got the prints or where I developed or anything. There was some darkroom somewhere there where you was got a, access yeah, to? Yeah, some, something. Now, I've seen reference to a series of photograms you made about bombing called Warscapes or something. Yeah, like but that. that's a little later. But you're still, you're still doing that kind of thing? Oh, sure. That's nothing. In fact, I'm taking my experience of seeing all the pictures of European bombing raids you know, and how the whole landscape, you know, flares up and how it creates craters and so on. And I make a series of, of photograms called Air Raid or something like that. Bombscapes or Warscapes. Bombscapes. I 
those things, see, I always loosely title them. They could frequently change their title. It wasn't critical to me. Right. The idea was that it was either a bombscape or bombing run or something like that. The idea was to, to answer your question, you see, I would be photographing at Chinute when I actually did those things. I was photographing a pretty girl every week for the camp newspaper and making what were equivalent of pinups of the local girls. But got a whole series of them. At the same time that I was doing these abstract photographs, no sweat, no dislocation. So you get to Chinook Field and... See, that's part of the new education. There's this distinct categorization of, you know, of activities, some of which are branded, you know, art, high art, low art, and those distinctions. And you were just plain art. <laughs> well, no, I didn't even think in terms of art as such. I just thought of photography. All of its possibilities. I love making motion pictures, you know. So, you got to Chanute Field, and the theory was you were going to... Right, I got to Chanute Field, and... Uh, now, just to make sure I understand, is that C-H-E-N-A-U-L-T? No, C-H-A-N-U-T-E. It's a French flyer's name. It's named after a French flyer. can't remember his first name. It's at, at uh, Rantoul, Illinois. Okay, well, I can... Yeah. Okay. And uh, it, well, it was greatly expanded into a technical man center, one of the largest, and very high technology was available there, both in mechanics and uh, you know, instructor, link trainer instructors, and uh, I mean, one time I taught photographic uh, classes for uh, wax. That when they graduated my class. They became, automatically became sergeants, and I was still a, a temporary corporal. I, uh, but that was typical. Yeah. I mean, your position in the, in the Air Corps or military is always, the, the title is deceptive. There are a lot of staff sergeants. For instance, let me do it sort of chronologically. I get to yeah. Chanute, I get pneumonia on the train or something. So I then had to wait there again, as I recall it. And uh, when I get better, I'm uh, working, uh, or maybe I just had a cold. I remember, you know, enormous number of maybe cleaning 50 big pots. You know, you were on for a long period of time, like 12 hours, uh, you know, and then all off. Not the job you came to do, in other words. No, no. So finally, uh, I did get into the link, the class opened up, I go through it and do very well. I'm in the top percentile. Now, let me make sure I understand. So yeah. this was a class to train people, to train people how to fly? Not people, officers. That's why the college, <laughs> college education was an important factor. You were dealing with gentlemen, officers are gentlemen, enlisted men are not. I mean, at that time, I suppose it's still true. Yeah, right. At that time, incidentally, the Air Corps was still very segregated. There were absolute, you know, black outfits that were digging trenches or, you know, doing manual work. I think all through the war, pretty much, the Army was segregated until... Well, yeah, until about the end years. of it, when they began to form, I mean, there was one black outfit that, that was segregated of aviators, just as there was an outfit in the Army, I think, of Japanese. Yeah, I don't think it was until 48 that Truman, I think, finally said, okay, well, yeah. anyway. Yeah, anyway. Uh, anyway, this was a very special kind of group. So you learned to fly? No, I learned to navigate. Oh. It's a different kind of skill. I also happened to learn how to fly. I never did fly, you know, but I learned in the course of it because I used to go up with aviators. Let me tell it chronologically. I went through and learned how to take apart a link trainer mechanism, you know, totally accepting for the electronics. And uh, I learned how to, you know, fly this thing, navigate this thing. You made a record, you see, a guy went in, covered canopy, and then you uh, 
had made a record of what his maneuvers were, whether he was going up, down, sideways, or what. And uh, so I graduated, and because of this 10% thing, I was given a 10-day furlough, and I went back to Detroit and enjoyed it, and, and, uh, and came back. And, but while I was in Detroit and looking at my pictures and everything, I thought, oh, you know, this is a little stupid. Here I am, a guy that's worked for the government, you know, and I've worked for major magazines, and I'm, you know, teaching <laughs> aviators how to uh, navigate. And in the practice of this, incidentally, uh, I did practice a lot on returnee flyers and uh, watched it later. Guys from the Battle of Britain were fire pilots, and then at one point they started a little later the B-29 program. It was kind of secret, teaching uh, mechanics and assembling crews for B-29 projects in the Pacific. And so we get one of these guys into a wing trainer and they all were cocky pilots because they had survived 75, 85 missions or maybe 125. They thought they bore charmed lives. And they did. I mean, those guys were knocked off all over the place and they were high tension people. They used to kill themselves driving at high speed between Chinook Field and Urbana all the time. Anyway, we put them in there and, you know, give them instructions beforehand. And then they'd be very cocky after, you know, half hour they knew everything. So we let them fly a flight. And this was all preparation for the Pacific where you flew over, there were no landmarks like there was in Germany and France where you picked up a river and flew down the river. Um, well, you'd let the guy fly and they invariably goofed up some way like they'd been flying underwater for you know, 20 minutes. <laughs> and they wouldn't believe it, you know, but you'd show them on the chart and they finally got it through their heads, a lot of them, that they'd better learn how to navigate. And they did. So, after the, the when I got out, I went to, uh, I may have told you this, I went to the colonel of the training command, not the field. See, they were different. Yeah, the training command guy that was head of the school was one kind of colonel and there was a general, brigadier general or colonel that was head of the whole field. Yeah. Um, I went to him and I said, look, you know, this is silly. I really had a great deal of experience in photography and I'd like to get into photography and out of the program. And he said, no way, and they were cutting orders. Uh, I think I was supposed to go to Alaska or something. So he said, no way, we've just spent five, $8,000 in your training, and you're good, so you gotta stay in it. So I saluted him, and I went across, and I thought of the name of my uh, friend, who was a sergeant then, a guy named Jack Chaikin, who I'd gone to Michigan with. Would that be C-H-A-I-K-I-N, I think. And, uh, He just pulled my card out. Meaning he eliminated you from the record? Yeah, and put me part? in the base photo. You know, and then got some records cut because the assistant, the lieutenant colonel, was also a friend from Detroit, had been in the reserves. And Jules would know his name. He was in the Board of Education in the music department for years. Very bright guy. And, uh, so I landed in the base photo where there were about four staff sergeants from the old army, old Air Corps, whatever it was called then, I've forgotten, uh, regular army men. And the head of it was a warrant officer who had been a staff sergeant, or I think he was a staff sergeant promoted a warrant officer, and he was in charge. And I scrubbed the floors for about two months. Of the photo lab in the uh -huh. photo area? And I didn't get on to doing photo until I kept loaning money to this warrant officer, Williams, uh, to the tune of about 300 bucks. And then I started making photographs. And then they were very happy that I was there because I did all the work. I mean, they just sat around. Did you ever get the money back? No. <laughs> I was loaning it to them. <laughs>
Uh, so they read the paper, got dressed and went in their banner or something. They were just so lazy. And this is just a, a photo unit for this base, essentially. Yeah, but this base has thousands of men, lots of activities, and a base photo newspaper, and all kinds of, you know, hometown pictures that have to be sent out. You know, everybody was very busy. So and it has good equipment, uh, and we make we made all the base identification photographs, which was an enormous job. I could develop four three, four film packs in one crack, which I wouldn't dare do, you know, on something important. Just plop them in and, you know, move them. And uh, so I did that. That was, you know, you set up the guy's name and serial number and stuck it on his card. Well, then I began to do some other things. Right next door was an audiovisual place, and some of my friends that I knew, Pavlicek from the New Bows was there, Dick Pavlicek. Who had been a student there? When yeah, when I was there. And I met a very nice guy, the name will come back to me, Jack Capes would know it, Richard somebody. Now, how do we spell Capes while we're at it? Is that K-A-P-E-S. He's an agent here. Yeah. Um, and his wife, incidentally, worked at Urbana, at, uh, on the base. That's <laughs> how I knew her. You knew her then? Yeah. And we were very good friends. And. Uh, Anyway, photographically, I did a lot of this, you know, still photography on the ground, but then I needed some money. I think I was getting $30 a month, and then maybe 50 maybe it was 50 I wanted to get in flying status. Finally, I did, and I began to photograph. I had to put in, I think it was 30 hours in the air, and uh, I began photographing and doing favors for, well, like there was a marvelous guy an officer from the older army, Brigadier General O'Neill. And uh, he took a liking to me, so I started flying around with him at various events that he had to go to and making publicity pictures. But I also had the job of photographing all the accidents for the field. For the record. Guys, yeah, for the report, the Inspector General or whatever they call it. Maybe that's in the Russian army, but we have the equivalent. Uh, yeah. All reports had to have a picture, and these guys kept stunning the planes and killing themselves. You know, bailing out and their parachute wouldn't open, or they were drunk, or they just flew it into the ground, or something. They, were, they exceeded the capacity of the plane. Yeah, very frequently. Tore the wing off or something. Yeah. And some of the planes weren't maintained very well in the heat of the confusion. In the heat of the confusion. Well, then I took a lot of pictures, you know, for the training command, and on a few occasions, I would also take some pictures for the audiovisual section. We were producing mainly manuals. They had their own photographers, but occasionally I would do something for that. And um, now, were you going to say something about making films? No, they made films. We didn't. They made slide strips and films. It was an audiovisual outfit. Um, so this went on for a while, and I did finally got the job of, you know, doing pictures for the base newspaper or all, which was a continual job. Made a lot of friends, and, uh, you know, there was always the danger of being shipped out or, but in my case, by that time, there were so many new recruits that they were getting younger men, and it was much better to be a younger man. I mean, I had a soldier as a younger man than an older guy. I mean, guy 21 is your perfect. May 18 to 24 would be your maximum. Yeah. Uh, so how long were you at Chinook then? Well, I was just trying to think. Did you come out of the service there or were you... No, 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 no. I can't remember the exact how long I stayed there, maybe a year or something. And then I got kind of bored and thought, well, Jesus, I'll try and get something more interesting. So I told this colonel that I knew, I can't remember his name now, that if anything came up that was interesting, see, there were orders always coming through there for jobs to be filled, that uh, I'd like to get out. And so that was all right. So finally, there came through a secret orders that they needed somebody 
the Assistant Chief Air Staff Intelligence Office in Washington. Well, the joke was I had already worked, done work for the Assistant Chief of Staff Air Intelligence uh, from our OWI. Different kind of things than what they were doing, but photographs of their activities. Mm -hmm. So I thought, oh boy, this is it, man. I'm going to really do something exciting. Intelligence, secret. Yeah, right, Washington in the Pentagon. <laughs> so I get to Bowling Field, that was where the people were stationed who worked at the Pentagon, the enlisted men. And some the Bowling office. Field? Bowling, B O L L I N G. Well, Bowling Field was a result of some political corruption. It was built on swamps. So that in February, there was such a miasma of mist there, you could not see your, the guy in the next bunk. It was also the place where WACs were stationed, who were working at the Pentagon, you know, doing a lot of things, and they revolted. They actually revolted for three or four days. They would not go to work. Because the people that were on the base, they were supposed to take care of the housekeeping, namely keep the place warm, clean, you know, and livable, and the food did not perform. They didn't give a goddamn about these people. And the wax revolted. And our commanding officer was a guy that was affectionately known as the ape. <laughs> he was the son of a relative of some officer. And he was an officer like a first lieutenant or something, or captain. And he was so stupid, you know, and he allowed this situation to so degenerate. And the reason he was there was they didn't want to kick him out. They wanted to watch him, so he, that's where he was there. And we used to get to, to work by going down on a launch down the Potomac to somehow get to the Pentagon. And it was miserable. Well, the job itself was in the main, and among the things we did was develop, uh, you know, pictures that were being taken of Japan to make new maps. And that's where uh, Doolittle's raiders and so on, they were flown back directly to the Pentagon, if I recall. And I think the first pictures, actually, the guys were so scared, there was so much flack, they, the story was they forgot to take off the uh, lens shade. And they went all through this flack, and everything was blank. Now, that may be an apocryphal story, but it certainly was widely believed at the time. Certainly a metaphor for... Confusion feeling and fear it. and everything else. So that's where uh, I worked for the, uh, in, in that place, thinking I was going to really do a good job. And it turns out I was working next to wax and, you know, uh, printing long aerial strip negatives so that they balanced out without getting black so you could read the detail. And that was, that's has got to be as boring a job as you can possibly make. And then I thought I'd be rescued again. There was a bulletin sent out saying, could anybody take color photographs? And I, you know, volunteered and I photographed General Arnold, made a color, color portraits of him, of which many prints were made. And then I went right back to doing the same goddamn thing. I said, the hell with it. Oh, another one of my job was, I was cleared top secret. I photographed the uh, room where they kept track of the number of planes lost. And I, I guarantee you, they never had the slightest idea of any of those things. Wait, you photographed what? The board that kept track of all the planes that were lost, you know, shot down our losses and enemy losses and whatnot. Made records, photographic records that were distributed. Uh, so I decided to hell with this. I'm going back to Chanute and called my friend at Chanute and he made a request for me and I went back to Chanute. So how long were you in? In the meantime, Washington? while I was there, in the latter part, I lived with my friend Elman again. I moved off Bowling <laughs> You know, you learn how to do things when you're in those situations. So then I went back to Chanute. And uh, we can pick that up uh, later. Okay. How I got out and you know, but so. But how long were you in Washington about? Again, it was probably nine months or something like that. Something under a year. Yeah. Over a half year, under a year. Yeah, something like that. I'm sure there's there's a way of getting a service record that would have all that. 
if you do, then get my last two months' pay, which I did not collect. I'm so <laughs> anxious to leave their establishment. I never you could probably get it, you know. The roster. Well, I'm sure you're supposed to be able to accept it. What's it amount to? Hundred bucks or something? Well, probably more than that. But when I got out, I was a corporal and on flying status. No, it probably was three, four hundred bucks. Well, Jesus, be worth it. You split it with me if I get it for you. Sure. An <laughs> interesting test, you know, to see if their files are. Actually, I got out with a disability pension of 10% because I had hurt my back there. Hmm. And then I, some terrible doctor here in Chicago said, there's nothing wrong with my back. And that, that kiboshed the uh, pension? But, yeah, but there was something wrong with my back. <laughs> I've still spent, spent a lot of money on my back. Well, so you want to pick up then when you... Yeah, I go back to Chinook Field, and then we can, because then that transits naturally to to Chicago. To Chicago. Okay. Well, Will is always a little late, so he'll probably be here. Let me just make a note. This is uh, real four. Okay, so the date is uh, November 3rd, 1977, and this is what day, Jim? Fifth? Is today Thursday? Yeah. Sixth. Sixth day. Sixth day of interview, oral interview, by Jim McQuaid of the <coughs> Oral History Project at International Museum of Photography. Let's go. Okay. When last seen, you were coming out of the swamp in Fort Bowling or whatever, and going back to Chanute because it was so... Oh, camp bowling. Camp bowling. The thing you tried to get into to be more exciting was even more boring than what you were doing. Yeah. And you went back to Chanute after a period of time. Mm -hmm. And then that's kind of... Yeah, I went there. back into base photo. <clears throat> and... Uh, started, I ran the base photo. I forgot to mention before I, when I was at Chinook the first time, I taught groups of wax uh, photography. There were some classes. Well, you mentioned they became yeah. sergeants? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Okay. I'd forgotten. Well, I went back and uh, the uh, war was going on, you know, full blast, but the tide had begun to turn. And uh, so after a little while after I got there, somewhere probably end of 44 or 45, um, my friend, the illustrator, works at Audiovisual, and I took a, uh, a large kind of studio room above a bakery shop right near the university. Uh -huh. Right near the uh, hotel, whatever the name of it is, the big hotel there. This is in Rancho. Urbana. Urbana? Yeah, Urbana. Uh -huh. And I uh, brought my car, I guess. Which was up in Detroit? Yeah, I had been. And uh, would get up at a more reasonable hour, because I was running things. And, there were a lot of lieutenants coming back from all over. And I taught a lot of them how to be photo officers. Mm -hmm. And they're always outranked. Now, I made... Now, a photo officer was not a photographer, is that right? Or Well, in the, um, in the Navy, nobody, no officer was supposed to photograph. Steichen got a special dispensation. That's always remarked. Uh, and in the Air Corps, Essentially, uh, all the photographers were uh, enlisted men, uh, were not officers. Um, I can't remember. Um, I think all straight up, to, uh, all the way, the enlisted men, you know, actually took pictures. Uh, one of my students is now in a California base. He's been, he was in Vietnam, and he's a major. He's uh, been all over the place. Knows all about you know high technical electronic stuff. And 
Uh, he's at one of the California bases. They've been cut down, these photo outfits. I think they're just probably two or three in the world. They're very expensive to run, and they're very efficient now. Yeah. I mean, the satellites replaced a lot of the stuff that they used to do, uh -huh. mapping type thing. Um, so I came back there, got this uh, room, and we used to go in there maybe every other night. And I started taking pictures, including some dudes and some girls that I knew. Or Did we say what this guy's name was? I can't remember. Uh, it's easily found out because Jack Capes goes and sees him in New York all the time. I just have some lapse of memories of some of these sure, people. Sure, Rich. Jack Cage would know. Oh, yes. Uh, there were actually three of us, Dick Pavlicek and this handsome illustrator guy and myself, and we used to go there. And we used to, you know, know a lot of people in our band, began to know a lot of people in our band and so on. It was very relaxed. We'd sleep there frequently. Meanwhile, at the base, I just, you know, did a lot of all kinds of uh, record photographs and that's mainly what it was, publicity photographs. But I started working rather seriously in the dark rooms on my own work, on the idea of multiple negatives then. Mm -hmm. And made quite a number of pictures, maybe a couple hundred at that point. Now, were, were these, when you say multiple negatives, you mean putting together two negatives? Right. Not a multiple exposure? No. I like the idea of the transparency of the negative and the fact that you could control where you put it. See, the thing that Jerry does by isolating the, uh, the, uh, the negative that's in the enlarger, you know, and then printing it, I like the transparency of the overlap. I like that. Mm -hmm. He's tried to eliminate it. He saw my pictures and he reacted against it, you see. Yeah, I've read that description. That's in one of the issues of contemporary photography. Yes, yeah, winter of 64 or something I like that. Know. Yeah, I found, I found it. Did you? Yeah. Well, that's the only reference he's ever made to me, but that's the thing that ticked him off. Got him going. Mm -hmm. And uh, Henry knew about my pictures, you see, and asked me for the show, and he was a student then. And it's kind of interesting, you know, how you affect different people in different ways. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you never know until years. Mm -hmm. You know, or what seems to be affecting people at one at the time, something else that's really affecting them. Um, well, that went on until uh, I did a lot of work using four by five, using uh, two and a quarter, uh, and then I started coming up to Chicago in the fall of '45 uh, and seeing the whole. I knew he was ill. Until that occasion when, uh, around Christmas of '45. Uh, they invited me to uh, dinner at the house, which was just two blocks away from, from here, an apartment that's since been torn down. And uh, it was very pleasant, you know, Maholi and uh, Sybil, and their, they had two daughters, Bushy and Hachua. And uh, Maholi was quite ill. He had been getting chemotherapy of one kind or another, and he had leukemia, you know. Uh -huh. And uh, but he was painting, and uh, he was doing a whole series that had to do with the idea, really, of of the atomic explosion, which had been in August of that year. Right? Yeah, right. That's what finished the war off. Right. Actually. The war was actually over, and you were still in uniform. Yeah, everybody was starting to. Well, let me finish with Maholi that, and then we'll go back to the other thing. The, uh, so he was painting a whole series of pictures, which I thought were very beautiful. And these are the ovals. These, these were the ovals, and also it was a cross between bubbles, the idea of the iridescence of the bubble, and the uh, atomic bomb 
all tied up with in terms of my view. Early uh, uh, ways in which he used overlapping planes and geometry uh, back in the 20s. In a sense, he had pushed forward but gone back simultaneously. Uh, so he was painting this picture called The Ovals. And now this is an easel painting? Yeah, large size easel painting. And, um, we talked, he offered me the job of trying to set up a photography department at, the, at what was called the School of Design at that point. It was on Oak Street and State, then, on the second floor of the building. Mm -hmm. Did he have the plans to move at that point? Yes. Mm -hmm. To um, the move to the historical? I don't know if that had been finalized. Yeah. Uh, the school is functioning at this place on State Street. Mm -hmm. So, um, and it's interesting, you should keep in mind that everybody that was teaching there was obviously either old or something was wrong with them. In terms of the war, I mean? In terms of being, uh, not being in the, in the army, you know, in the military. Uh, so there were some older people there. You know, and obviously there were some people that were deferred for some reason or another, I don't know. So, Molly had known me, you know, and seen me over a long period, and he wanted to, he saw the potential in the photography, because the, the uh, veterans had already begun to come out, and a great numbers of them wanted to be photo take photography courses. So they had instituted a two-year photography course and it was quite disorganized. This is what was in existence? That was, well, well, it was... At that, that time. That was the degree they were getting, a certificate. Mm -hmm. But Maoli and I also talked that it was time to begin to make the transference from a two-year course to a four-year course, which was my goal. The, so, we talked, and I, he offered me a certain sum, which was quite low, but, as a salary. Yeah, I forget what it was. I think it was $4,200 a year. Um, but I was single, and so what? Does it, make any, it doesn't make any difference, really. You were pretty interested in doing it, I guess. Yeah. It was a challenge, and also I uh, felt easy in that kind of situation. Thought I could have some time to do my own work. So, uh, when we got through, I agreed to come, and he gave me this uh, cop, this uh, sketch, sketch, yeah, pastel sketch. That was our contract, as it were, that I would give him my three hundred dollars of severance pay for the painting, and he, uh, and then I would come do this job. It was just sort of a nice note, that's all. Um, and I went back to, I think I went to Detroit, as a matter of fact. I could get furloughs then fairly easily. And it was over the holidays. I think I went, then went to Detroit. For Christmas? Yeah. Christmas holiday? Or New Year's, you know. Right, but yeah. yeah. I think I went back there. And then I got back to, uh, yes, I did, did go back. Because what was uh, to Detroit? Because what happened was, I'm trying to reconstruct it. Uh, I don't know if I went back to Detroit then, but in the next six weeks, I did go to Detroit. I took a furlough, and I was on furlough when the number of points that you needed. They had a point system for getting out. My points got high enough so I could get out, and then they declared at Chanute, you know, that I was eligible to get out. So I went back to Chanute, and they had already signed the rosters so that you could get paid. And because I was away, I didn't sign the roster, and if I wanted to get paid, I had to stay there. Or theoretically, they promised me when I got to the uh, 
discharge place up here in the North Shore, um, I could sign it there. Well, as it turned out, I never did sign it either place. I just got in the car and went up to, uh, what's the name of this place? It's not Great Lakes. It's or... not Great Lakes. It's the Fort, Jesus Christ thing. Anyway, it's right. It's frustrating. Um, so what happens with your mind when you begin to get old. You know, little pieces drop out. And the name, whatever the force is, yeah. So uh, I got there and got all my exams and everything, signed all my papers, and got out, was discharged with a 10% disability on my back, which I had injured in some of the maneuvers there, exercises and things. And the very, got out on a Friday, and the next Monday, I think it was, I went to work. Now, this was... This was in February of 1946, as I recall. January or February. I think it was February. Uh-huh. And was that the beginning of a new semester at yeah. school? Yeah. Um, it was near the whether it was actually the beginning or not. Mm-hmm. So, Molly would come in once in a while. Crombie Taylor was really running the place. There was a wonderful woman named Molly Thwaites who was the secretary. Um... Nathan may have even had an administrative job then. I don't recall. Uh, I know he was teaching some foundation course or something. Uh, Levstick and Soklik were teaching the uh, photography. But what shocked the hell out of me was the fact that the equipment consisted of two broken down Elwood enlargers and one 4x5 enlarger that pro- uh, camera that probably cost 10 bucks. Uh, tropical camera Maholis, which I'd seen much earlier, and uh, whatever students had. It was a mess. An absolute and total, utter mess. Now, let me ask this. Was Levstick... Uh... Levstick was a commercial photographer who somehow got involved, uh, was very nice, you know, eager to help. There had earlier been, I think earlier, a man named James Brown, another commercial photographer. See, those are the people Molly could use. Was Lestick an older guy who hadn't been in the war? That's right. Yeah, he was a good commercial photographer. And Sokolik was a chemist. And why he wasn't in the thing, I don't know. What do you mean? Why he wasn't in the military. Oh. You know, I don't know why Nathan wasn't in the military. Well, actually, uh, Nathan, I think, worked for the Navy for a year or two in a civilian capacity. Could be. During the middle of the war. Could be. But there were very few people that were deferred because they were, you know, that that was a lot cheaper to just throw them in the Navy, you know, Uh just induct them Uh and assign them. But there were, you know. Uh Kepish did, uh, I think, some works. I have this, which is... What we were going to ask? Oh, the war, the atomic bomb. Yes, it had been, in, I think, August something, 9th or something, 1945. 45. And uh, that, that finished off the war. From then on, it was all downhill. Uh, the morale dropped. People, you know, uh, screwed around and uh, discipline was practically impossible. They instituted this point system. number of months that you were in the service and what your service was, whether it was domestic or, mm-hmm. or overseas. Now, as a note here, this is a calendar, and this says that a spring semester started February 3rd. Yeah, that would be about In 47, it. and it presumably started at the same time in 46. Approximately. You know, I don't so. think these things changed very much. And if you look at about the second page, there's a list of uh, the board of directors right. and of the faculty. Right. Maybe, we, maybe there's some comment to be made just briefly on on some of these people. We've mentioned most of them. Yeah. Well, we have mentioned some who were students, for instance. But let this is already, you see, a year down the line after I yeah. got there. This catalog is a little bit later. So, uh, really, things changed all the time there. Well, but uh, for, well, do you want to wait, hold this until we. Okay. There. I mean, I, we can't go on forever you know, with all this stuff. Yeah. Well, this is the most interesting period in a sense, really. You know, when we get yeah. this 
first stanza. School. Yeah.